Hey there, I'm Becca, just another therapist making a podcast about mental health. I figured that I would tell some stories, share some wisdom, and figure out some of my own stuff along the way. After all, those who can't do, become therapists. Welcome to Becca Stories. Um, here we are, and welcome to Becca Stories. <laughs> um, I, it has, it's, it's been a minute since I've done an episode and really, honestly, that wasn't intentional, um, of me missing a couple episodes here and there. I really wanted to make the episodes a week to week thing, but life really does get in the way and, um, work has been super, super nuts. So I, life and work got really nuts. I actually, I found myself kind of calculating this with, um, a client, like trying to decipher like how much time we actually spend at work versus we time we spend sleeping versus time we actually get to spend relaxing and chilling out and all that kind of stuff and doing the things we want to do. And when I balance it out, like, okay, if we're actually spending 40 hours a week at work, then and we're spending eight hours a night sleeping, then we have 72 hours left in our week where we actually do what we want to do. Um, But the crazy part of that is that it seems like we spend our whole entire life working because we're spending a big chunk of those 72 hours complaining about working. And uh, that's kind of what my life has been like for the past uh, couple a couple weeks, um, just because, uh, things have been really rough and, um, I've been really frustrated. And so I wanted to, um, be able to take that experience that I had and I wanted to be able to put it into my podcast episodes. But then I thought to myself like, well, that's really not fair to my listeners because you guys, are coming here to be educated by stuff. You're not here to listen to um, me like whine and moan and groan about a whole bunch of random shit happening in my life. Uh, so I um, I did find myself um, actually like pretty vulnerably going into like this like downward like depressive spiral and all that kind of fun stuff. And um, in the difference between like self-care and self-comfort, like I... It, I went into that like self-comfort kind of spiral where I wasn't really taking care of myself, but, um, I was like digging way too much into like the TV time and the, like just chilling on the couch and like going to work, chilling on the couch, not really, um, doing much to actually better myself type kind of thing. And that's something that I do. I tend to like spiral into that depression. So, Um, here we are like just getting back into the groove of things. And, um, so, you know, I, my original goal was to make Wednesdays like that new episode day for podcasts. Um, but it's not Wednesday and I kind of knew like ahead of the game that I wanted to make, um, world suicide prevention day, a new episode day. So, um, I do want to take time to shed light on this topic And I want to talk about my experience, um, 
with suicide and depression in this episode. So if you find anything that I'm going to be saying at all uh, triggering, then I really want to encourage you to use the resources that I have on my website. You can just go to thebeccastories.com. There's a nice big button at the top that says, you know, help, and you can click on there. Um, I have the crisis text line on there. I have the suicide prevention hotline number on there. And honestly, those two lines, I've worked for the Arkansas crisis line and I still volunteer for the crisis text line. And both of those places are super dear to my heart. Um, I've, they're great communities to work for. So, um, if you ever just need to like get things out there and in the open, um, and work through stuff, I encourage you to do stuff. You don't have to be contemplating suicide in order to get to that point and work through those things. So if at any point in time, there's things that I'm saying in this episode about suicide, they're like, Oh, Hey, this is bringing stuff up for me then I really do encourage you to go check out those resources. Um, Find yourself a therapist if you don't have one. Find yourself a way to get medication management. always will encourage people to do that. Um, Because unfortunately, there are way too many of us that are struggling out there with this. And, um, you know, we often feel alone, but we do need to band together and share our stories. So um, hopefully my story gives you a tad bit of hope because there is some hope in it, even though it's kind of crazy town. Um, but yeah, so, um, in the first few stories, I shared a lot of my experiences with you as a small child. And when I say small child, I mean like literally like in like two, it was like three, four kindergarten ish age. So I'm going to skip like a whole bunch of years. Um, I'll go back, but I'm going to skip to like middle school Um, because although there were a lot of signs for my anxiety and depression that played a huge part, um, during the years in between, uh, kindergarten and middle school, I want to hone in on like that actual, um, like suicidal process and, and attempts, um, that happened when I was in middle school for this episode. So, um, when I go back and I reflect on it, I kind of think it's crazy that like a, a kid that age, you know, 12, 13, uh, years old would contemplate dying because their life is so bad. Um, and you know, I do have a lot of parents and young adults that come up to me and say, well, what is it about their life that is so bad that they feel like they have to kill themselves? And, um, really, um, you, I don't think you have to have a reason to want to die when you are depressed, um, just because of that chemical balance and imbalance inside of our brain. It's like you are so unfocused at that point in your life where it's just like your emotional versus your rational is two totally separate things. Um, and I really want to like validate that for people. It's like, we rationally know that we don't want to die. It is not going to solve any sort of problem for us whatsoever. It's, 
It's as my dad would say, dying is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Okay. Um, but, um, emotionally it's the only thing that makes sense. Okay. So what in, at that point in my life, um, I, I know that I didn't have to have a reason for dying. Um, it didn't, it didn't work that way for me at least. Um, but luckily I had like a saving grace that helped me through a lot of that process. And so it came to me when I was in sixth grade. Um, see in, in grade school in Arkadelphia, um, from like literally kindergarten until middle school, we sat at the, the lunch tables and it was always every single year, um, you sat with your grade, um, in your class in alphabetical order. So I sat with David person because I was Becca Phillips. So I sat next to David person every single day because, you know, P E and then P H it was like that. I sat next to him every single year. That's just how it was. Um, and then literally sixth grade came and we had freedom (laughs) and that was terrifying because I was bullied a lot when I was in grade school. Um, nobody really wanted to sit next to me at lunch. Like, I mean, like, uh, people tolerated me. I still didn't really understand why. I mean, they tolerated me. It was probably my sparkling personality. Who knows why? Um, but, um, yeah, so in sixth grade, it was like the first day of school or something like that, going to the cafeteria. And I realized we don't have to sit in ABC order. And that was like super scary to me. So I like ran over to a lunch table. It was like literally the first available lunch table that didn't have anyone sitting at it. And I went and sat down on it at that lunch table with my lunchbox. And even though there was a lot of people that weren't sitting down at lunch tables already and were still in line getting lunch, nobody like volunteered to sit with me at the lunch table. Like that's how much people didn't want to be my friend. Um, And I was like totally used to that. Like I was the kind of kid that would give myself time out at recess because it was easier to explain to people that I was in trouble than um, tell people that, you know, I was, didn't have people to play with. I was one of those people. Super fun stuff anyways. Um, I was a dork is basically what I'm getting myself into. Um, so it was a lot of anxiety and that's how like the first four days at school went is I made like a beeline to that table sat by myself and that's just how it was. So here comes in, uh, Anna Lee Bell. Okay. Um, and Anna is that bro, Anna, literally I say, when I say saving grace, like I don't know how else to explain to her. Um, she had crazy bubbly personality. Okay. So imagine this like super tall sixth grader, like crazy curly hair, like I'm pretty sure like she always wore this like camo blue, like random, like short sleeve shirt with a big butterfly on it. Like we were high class with our fashion, by the way. And like 
She was so energetic and I was so shy. I know that's like weird to think about me being shy considering all the stuff that I've told you about Becca's stories, but like my Mm -hmm. social anxiety was high class at this point. So she came up to me and it kind of shocked me a whole bunch. Um, so I, um, I had no idea why she was coming up to me, but she did. And she invited me to sit with her. So I sat with her and her friends, which is how I classified it. You know, that was her friends. And eventually over time she became my friend and I mean, we were inseparable. Um, I think the reason why we both clicked as friends is honestly, we were both really messed up in the head. We had a lot of, um, a lot of stuff in common when it came to how messed up we were in the head. (laughs) So, um, you would have never guessed that by looking at us uh, though, because we were, we looked like we had it together besides our fashion. We didn't have that together. We really didn't have that together because like I'm, I kind of wore high heel flip flops. Yeah. I never said that. I, I was, yeah, no, I just wasn't good at that. Anyways. Um, so we, we also like with our being inseparable and everything like that, it followed not just in school, but outside of school. And so, like, we would get home from school and we would wait until, like, that certain time of night. I don't remember if it was, like, 7 or 8 at night or something like that when minutes were free with AT&T or Singular or whatever it was at that point in time. And then we would, like, talk on the phone for endless hours at night um, because I'm pretty sure she had Verizon. I had AT&T, so our phone lines didn't mix together. Like, we were, like, super high class. Um, But, you know, it's just we connected really well. She was just really good friend for me. And I, I always felt like I belonged when I was with her. Sixth grade was a, was a good time to have that friendship with her. Um, when I was going into seventh grade that summer beforehand, um, I got really involved in the church and it became my life. I'm honestly not exaggerating at all when I say that. Um, I was there anytime the doors were open. Um, so I, I, this is, I, so I'll I'll go back. I'm before I go further on this, I, I do want to say something that's, um, something about this real quick. I made a post on my personal Facebook a couple weeks ago about church trauma and how it affects people. And, um, I have a lot of the, a lot of women that I really do believe helped raise me in the church. And, um, they were really good role models, really helped me become the person that I am today. And I was really grateful for those women. Um, but then there were characters that were in the church that were very unhealthy for me and did cause a lot of trauma for me, um, in the church. So 
when I posted that on my personal Facebook, I had noted that I was going to share a part of my story about some of the things that have caused my, my trauma inside the church. Um, so this is a part of that as I go into some of these discussions. Um, and it is, it, I think a lot of people might be like a tad bit aware about it, but not how much aware of it, of how, how much it affected me, maybe is the right word. So I just kind of wanted to throw that out there, um, as you guys are listening to this. Um, so anyways, I, I reflect back on, uh, my time in the church now as that, you know, 12, 13 years, 13 year old, um, and my relationship with the church itself, you know, as a building, as an organization. And I realized that it was not a healthy organization at all. Um, or sorry, not a healthy relationship with the organization. Um, because I depended on a, a particular leader in that church and it, and it wasn't God that I was depending on. Um, I, I did so much, um, that I did that so much that I created, you know, that person to the person and persons, the leaders, some of the leaders in that church, um, to be my God basically is what it was. I got to a point where, um, I got really confused on, (laughs) do you have triggers? My cat has triggers. She says, you're talking about things that make you sad. Do you need something? She says, I need something. You need something? This is Lucy, everyone. So here's what happens is I work telehealth therapy from home. And whenever I start saying the word trauma, Lucy wakes up from a dead sleep and she says, Mama, I'm the therapist and I got this and I'm going to take care of everything for you. And so mommy can't say the word trauma around Lucy because Lucy will go crazy town. So do you want up or down? What do you want? Because mommy's going to keep talking and we're going to get this podcast figured out. Okay. Um, so anyways, what ended up happening with, um, with basically my relationship with this organization is, um, the dependency that I had in, in the organization, in the church, it was played up and it was encouraged, um, even though that was never admitted by the leaders in the church. Um, and as a, you know, 12 and 13 years old, I, I don't think it was ever expected for me to, um, recognize that. I mean, if you really think about it at 12 years old, like, how are you even supposed to know if someone's treating you in an unfair way? You're not, you, you, you can't know that you're not, you're not old enough to understand that. I've, I've had to give myself some grace over that as, as I've learned how to heal from this over the years. Um, 
So even as people said like, Hey, this is not okay. Um, I didn't listen. And and really, why would I? Because I'm going to trust the people that are chosen by God, not the people that are just like some random, random people off the side of the street that, you know, come to church every once in a while. Like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. So it was something that really was tearing me apart on the inside. It was really making me struggle with my depression because I actually felt a sense of belonging in the church and it wasn't, it it wasn't God. It was people, you know? Um, so, um, I was confused. My depression and my anxiety was really at all time high. Um, I continually felt like, you know, what 13 year old has a 35 year old best friend and spends all of her time at church. Um, and that was me. It was my identity. Um, when people didn't like me or would reject me, it hurt me so deep because it was validated, um, that I was only going to have one, one friend my whole entire life. Um, and I felt stuck. And uh, I felt like, you know, this person, this leadership when church was going to control me um, and every move, move that I made. And I wanted to make my own choices, but I didn't feel like I had the ability to do that. And I was made to feel guilty. So the statement often was, um, you know, you're going to turn your back on your church and not fulfill your mission of God. Uh, how can you turn down God? And, you know, it's like, I mean, you can't, right? I mean, you can't, you can't turn down God. Um, it's just not, it's not something you're allowed to do. So, um, kind of giving me anxiety, just like even talking about this, but, um, I'm thinking about the consequences, like what will happen when people start to connect the dots and ask questions and, you know, will they believe me or will I be too late telling my story? Uh, my hope is to tell this and to heal Um, but I also to tell people and let them know that they're not alone. You know, um, I think a lot of people get into like relationships and situations and traumas like this and they think that like, Hey, it was my fault. It's always my fault. Um, I hope that that's not something that you experience after listening to what I've had to say today and you can start to heal from that as well. Um, but even though I had Anna in my life, uh, you know, the leadership at church made me feel like I was alone. Um, and I felt really isolated. So I could go to Anna for anything, but I really had to have her involved in the church too. Actually, any person that I wanted in my life had to be involved in the church. It's almost like I needed approval, um, of them before they came into my life. Like sometimes they passed the test and they stayed, but a lot of them didn't. And I went back to being isolated. So then eighth grade came and honestly, by eighth grade, I just felt like complete and utter shit. Um, I don't really think that there's a better phrase to put, put it at, um, at this point, um, I had been involved in the youth group for a full year and participated in a lot of events. One thing that I struggled with the most at that point was, uh, the feeling, um, when I would go to a really big church event and they would do the big uh, get saved prayer. And every time I would feel really, really guilty um, into getting saved. Um, so it's like I continued to feel like a fuck up. Like literally 
every single time that I would go to these events. Um, I never, I never felt like God really cared about it because I mean, when you have anxiety and you go to these events, like I kept thinking to myself because like I had this like complex basically where it's like, if I didn't, if I didn't get saved, then I was going to hell. If I didn't do everything that I was supposed to do in the church, then I was going to hell. If I didn't serve everybody that I was supposed to serve, I was going to go to hell. If I didn't do everything correctly, then I was going to hell. Hell was terrifying to me. I was supposed to do everything right. I was supposed to be perfect. That is anxiety provoking. That is trauma inducing. So what the hell is a person supposed to do to react like that as a child? So I would go to these big events where it's, I need to get saved. And then every single time I'd feel like I need to get saved because where is this big emotion? You know, these people get baptized, you see them and they're like, oh my gosh, I feel like my heart is so full. And I never got that feeling because I was waiting for that moment. I was waiting for God to take over. And I was waiting for him to like really just hone in and take over my life. But I always felt isolated 24 seven. I always felt like he couldn't save me. And that made me so sad. It, it was horrible. Um, so it was screwing with my head a lot. I was investing so much time in a church and none into the relationship with the entity that the church was actually supposed to be built about. I kind of like, as I've grown older, I've realized that I've, um, I have like a little bit of trauma, even when I read some scripture out of the Bible, because like, I like correlate a lot of the scriptures that I've learned from the Bible with certain people or certain events. So it's almost like my relationship with God is like correlated with trauma. And so it's like really difficult. And I've had to work really hard to desensitize that. Um, even within myself, you know, so it's, it's difficult. Um, so there was one night that my mom and my sister, they were out doing something. And my dad had this fancy dinner for work. Um, my dad wanted me to come with him and I was pretty excited about it. Now, um, as I've told you before, yeah, I know this is where the rough part comes in. Lucy's giving you a trigger warning. This is where the rough part comes in. Um, I, even though I was like attempting to be a little bit of an emo kid, I did like to kind of get dressed up and be a little fancy and like straighten my hair and stuff like that. So, um, I was getting ready. I was putting on a nice top, put makeup, makeup on. And then all of a sudden it was like this wave hit me. Um, and I can still feel it as I type this. It came over me in like literally a split second. I got undressed, put on some pajamas, and I just decided not to go. All I knew is that I needed to encourage dad to go to the dinner. Um, so dad asked me if I was okay. I told him I was okay. I just didn't feel good and I wanted to stay home. As easy as that. Uh, he left and I just, 
I was fighting with myself, you know, just as I told you that rational and that emotional brain, like I just was fighting with myself. But obviously at, you know, 13 years old, I didn't, I didn't know really what was going on. Um, I didn't want to die in that moment. I really didn't, but, um, my brain wanted to, and, um, honestly, my brain just didn't want to hurt anymore. And so I felt really defeated. Uh, I felt like super alone. It was like, no one was going to understand or take me seriously if, um, I, I told them about it. And so again, you think about the reputation that I've had with Becca stories. And, um, if I told someone that I was going to kill myself, uh, you know, like, what would they think that I was trying to accomplish? Like, was I doing it for attention? Um, or was I doing it just to like get a rise out of people? And it's like, no, I was like, I was wanting to tell people so I could get help, but like, no one was going to listen to that. So it's like, I felt alone in that. And like, I couldn't really talk about it. Um, so, you know, dad's gone. I'm obviously battling with this in my rational, emotional brain. Um, and I go into the kitchen and I get a knife and I'm pretty sure it's just like, you know, a regular, like, um, you know, like, uh, like an apple peel and knife, you know, um, like one that you would like, not like a steak knife, like something like that. Like one of the really sharp ones, um, that you would just see like in a knife block or something like that. Um, and I, I sat in the closet in my room. My closet was, uh, it's not like, you know, like that one that has like a door behind me. It was like a bifold door closet. And so it's just like a little bit of space enough where I could like close the bifold doors and just like sit there. And, um, I closed the doors and I just remember putting that knife to my wrist and, um, I had a, a flip phone, um, at that point, And I remember I looked over at my phone and I saw it light up. So I decided to turn it off, um, because I didn't want any distractions. So I really, I didn't want anyone to convince me that this wasn't the right choice. And I knew just being the person that I was, like, I would tell somebody what I was about to do. And so I didn't, I didn't want to talk to anybody about it. Um, so I turned my phone off and I put the knife back to my wrist and I, you know, as, as I was recalling this story and I have recalled this story before, but I really don't remember how long I had the knife on my wrist. It was there for a while. I don't, didn't cut, um, but I put like a lot of pressure on my wrist. And, um, I remember, um, like, I just remember feeling that like lack of hope, you know, like it, again, that battle with my emotional and rational side of my brain where it was like, like, do you want to die? And then also like when I, when my brain caught up with my emotions and I didn't kill myself feeling like a failure for not dying. 
And then also not cutting myself because not only did I not kill myself, but then I also had like no evidence that I tried to kill myself. So it's like, did you even try to kill yourself? Like, did you even like try to like have any feelings? Like, did it even count? So it's like my brain was like playing all sorts of emotions. And so it's like, if I was to talk to anybody about it, would they even have cared like, oh, you had some feelings or something like that. It was so difficult for me to express this. Um, but it was, my brain, it, it eventually did. It eventually catched catch up with my emotions. And um, I realized that I didn't actually want to die. Um, I just wanted the abuse to stop. And saying that sentence is really difficult for me because like I don't I didn't I hate calling it that because especially in public because it's like who who wants to say that you know um so I wanted to live this life like free from isolation um I texted Anna and I, I told her that I wanted to die. And I swear she, she did have the best reaction. Um, I'm, I'm sure she texted me back something comforting, but that's really not what I remember. I just remember the next day at school. Um, all the band kids, um, because yes, I was in band and played the French horn and by played the French horn, I'm going to admit this and I'm pretty sure that all my band teachers actually do know this, but I'm actually admitting this out loud. I'm pretty sure I actually only played my instrument instrument for like sixth grade and part of seventh grade. And then I just like pretended to play my instrument for like eighth grade, ninth grade. And then, you know, like I, I, I quit in 10th grade because I was like, my social anxiety was so high and I knew that I sucked at it. So I knew you guys already knew that, but I'm admitting it like on a social platform that I pretended to play my instrument because <laughs> I knew I sucked. So I was trying to save you guys from having a horrible band. So, um, there you go. But anyways, um, so all the band kids would, uh, meet in the band hall before classes started. And that morning I made a beeline to her, which honestly was kind of the norm. Um, I didn't really want to see anybody but her. And, um, so she slipped me a note and this like random stuff to ladybug. Um, it has been 14 years and I still have that piece of paper. Um, it's right here and I have it hanging on a frame on my wall. Um, and it is still all folded up and, um, the original, not a copy. Um, it's, uh, Anna stayed up that night after I got off the phone with her and told her what was going on in my head. And she wrote a poem and, um, it's stuck with me through literally all the moves that I've made, um, physically, um, I've moved like, I think like 12 times <laughs> since, um, I, she's written me this poem 
And it just reminds me that I'm loved. And so I'm going to read it to you guys. Um, I hope that it kind of does the same for you guys. So she didn't have a title on this. Um, and I think that she forgot that what it says. So maybe she'll listen to this and, uh, she'll remember some of it. So, um, this is it. And this is by Annalie Bell, now Annalie Thibodeau. Um, but this says, okay, someone who doesn't have a face, a porcelain angel paused in grace, never to have a friend so dear, always alone and always in fear. Let's call this lonely angel mercy who has talents that no one has ever seen. A heart so crushed and fragile so, her heavy heart in deepened woe, her pathetic wit existence in the world, nothing but an ugly girl. But then one day something changed, another light came into place, one not perfect but not demonic, something rough but very stoic, a light from earth and other beings, a light that was so clear to see. This light the girl did then walk to, stumbling and falling all the way through, till finally she reached the end, only to start falling and stumbling again. Afraid the tunnel would never end, she went back to her darkened land. Time passed by, and she soon sauntered back to the light that she never faltered. Her pale pink face all worn and dim, her empty mood turning to grim, an actual feeling passed in the rush, one that made her pale pink face blush. As she passed through the light, something changed. A color came into her lifeless face. Matted hair turned smooth and golden, eyes turned fresh like linen folded, hands outstretched forward toward a figure. Desperate clinging nearly linger. A voice of being came into place, all other thoughts of sadness being erased. Come, my friend, I love you so. Don't let your pure heart be filled with woe. So the girls walked off into the distance to their father in heavenly descent. The savior of that dark, frail girl was just like her not long ago. A beautiful person wielding faith as a rod. A lovely and talented daughter of God. So, yeah. Um, she was like, we were like 13 when she wrote that. So, she's kind of, she's kind of fucking awesome. <laughs> um, but, she's a... She's a really true friend, and uh, there's a reason why I've kept this this long, despite the multiple fights and the crazy things that Anna and I've been through. Um, she's always been my consistent, and um, we're the friends that can go weeks without talking and know that we're really always going to be best friends. Um, she's my person. I love her more than anything, even when we've uh, continued to choose, uh, even when we, or just me, mostly <laughs> me, um, continued to choose abusive environments. I mean, she never left me. Um, 
we've both had our fair share of the gamut. And um, right now, I think we've understood, you know, what 50-50 is for our friendship and sometimes 70-25. And um, I'm, I'm thankful for her asking me if um, I could sit with her at the lunch table. Uh, suicide is real, guys. Um, it's continued to be something that uh, I struggled with for a long time. I wish that could that I could say that um, that was the last attempt that I had, um, but it it wasn't. Um, the multiple traumas that I've been through played so many tricks um, in my head that I felt out of control basically all the time. Um, for those of you that, um, have ever felt suicidal, um, I'm sure that you can, I'm sure that you can relate to that. Um, you may be wondering, you know, if, if you've, if you have like anybody If you've ever have felt suicidal, you may be wondering, like, how do I communicate that to someone? Um, I think the best thing for you to do is to use the resources that are out there. And, um, and for those of you that have never felt suicidal, um, it's time for you to use those resources too, and to wake up. This is real. You need to, you need to get out there and you need to, you need to educate yourself and, um, you need to know that this is a real deal. So, um, you may be wondering how you can help and the suicide prevention lifeline has really great tools out there, um, with risk factors and warning signs and what to know. So, um, Here's just a couple of risk factors. I'm going to run through a couple of them. I'm, if you go onto my website, I'm going to have more information about it. But just like a couple of risk factors, you know, if you already have a mental illness, if you have alcohol, substance abuse problems, you're already struggling with hopelessness, impulsive and aggressive tendencies, you have a history of trauma and abuse, major physical illnesses, uh, previous suicide attempts, family history of suicide, job uh, financial loss, loss of a relationship. If you have easy access to lethal means, um, maybe there's a local cluster of suicide, a lack of social support or a sense of isolation, uh, stigma associated with asking for help, uh, lack of health care, um, or substance abuse treatment. Maybe there's cultural or religious beliefs such as the belief in suicide, is a noble resolution of a personal dilemma, um, or exposure to others that have died by suicide. Um, that's also something when we talk about, you know, triggers, trigger warnings and episodes of TV shows, you know, like people can watch stuff in TV shows or hear things on the news. And then, um, it's like, that's why we put stuff out there. It's like understanding your triggers and understanding your coping skills and whatnot. Um, we also know our warning signs, you know, if you're, um, pay attention to those who do have these risk factors and, um, 
look for the warning signs. You know, are they talking about wanting to die or kill themselves? Are they looking for a way to kill themselves? Like searching online um, or buying a gun? Um, Are they talking about feeling hopeless or having no reason to live? Are they talking about feeling trapped um, or being in unbearable pain? Are they talking about being a burden to others? Are they increasing the use of alcohol or drugs? Are they acting anxious or agitated, behaving recklessly? Are they sleeping too much or too little? Um, Maybe they're like lack of hygiene. Um, They're withdrawing or isolating themselves. They're showing rage or talking about seeking revenge or they have like really bad mood swings. Just really take the time to know the signs and ask the questions. One thing that people are afraid of is asking the question, um, do you want to die? Like, do you want to kill yourself? It's a tough question to ask because no one wants to ask a question when they're afraid of the answer. Um, I have people that are con- who are concerned about a family and friend, all con- concerned about a family or f- um, friend or someone like that. And they ask me, you know, if I ask them about suicide, am I going to make them want to kill themselves? And no, it's really important for them to have that conversation and encourage them to work through a safety plan with them. If you don't know how to work through a safety plan with them, then encourage them to find, you know, help through like the crisis text line or the national suicide prevention lifeline or find a therapist, get someone to help them with med management, uh, take them to like an inpatient hospital. If it's like, they have attempted and they need immediate psychiatric um, assistance. Um, the more prepared you are in understanding the resources and information on how to prevent suicide, the more that others will feel comfortable in talking to you about it. Um, you need to be open and accepting to what's going on. So the most important thing though, is to remain calm. Um, people will practice the behavior that you reflect. So I used to work on the crisis line. I still volunteer for the crisis text line. Um, it's an adrenaline rush, right? When someone is talking about suicide, I I don't want to minimize that for you at all. The best way to work through that anxiety is like I said, to educate yourself on suicide, depression, anxiety. When you know these signs, you have more of an ability to have the conversation instead of doing like a full on crisis intervention for yourself and for others. Um, I know, you know, one of my very first crisis calls that I did when a, a gentleman was attempting suicide, I was scared out of my mind and I'm glad that I had the support in a supervisor um, at that point. I was like, I don't know, do not know what's going on. But what I've learned is I cannot, I have to remain calm. You know, I have to say, you have the ability to remain calm with me. Let's practice that behavior. Let's move forward. Let's get through this together. You're not alone. Um... And I think that's, you know, a big part of what people, what Anna did for me too. Like, you know, just reflect on these words, reflect on the sanity. Um, I know that learning about the signs can be like really overwhelming because there's a lot of information out there. So I want to help you get there. Um, the stories that I continue to tell you will always be centered around the signs. 
of if it's about suicide or if it's about a particular mental illness. But I'm going to be using some more teaching tools as well. I'm hoping that I can do that through um, like YouTube or something of that nature. Um, so just want you to be able to ask questions, use the comments or the Q and A's. Um, and I want to be putting out more content that reaches out to you for you. Um, so be, tell me what you want to hear and what you want to know. So that way I can help you with that. So, whew, okay. This one took a lot longer than what I expected it to be. And I literally turned off the air conditioning. So you guys wouldn't hear all the rumble and mumble. And I'm sure that, Casey is all like, WTF, can I turn the air conditioning on? Um, as I close out, I just want to validate something to all the listeners out there and all my watchers too now. Um, something people may not understand is how suicidal thoughts come into play. Um, if you're having thoughts emotionally, but your rational brain doesn't want to die, this is a definite thing, Okay know that you have the power to ask for help. You are important enough to ask for help. Is that one more time? You are important enough to ask for help. You are worth asking for help. Show your emotions that you deserve to live another day. Okay. I'll be um, talking more about how we can combine the rational and the emotional in another episode, but since today is uh, such a triggering day for many, I just want to validate that you do deserve to live another day, um, and we want another day with you. So, until the next time, I am uh, getting out of here. If you need help and you need to reach out to someone, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or text the crisis text line. You can text the word hello to 471-471 and get help immediately with a crisis counselor. All right. I'll see you guys next time. Have a good night. Congratulations. You have made it through a whole entire episode of the Becca stories without complaining about how long and drawn out my stories are. Now go on to all my forms of social media at the Becca stories and share and like all my content. Let's go ahead and make mental health less of a stigma and let's talk about all the shit that's bothering us. Sound good? Sounds good to me. Awesome. I'll see you in the next episode.